Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you had an inkling, did you not? You did. I've got a great show for you this week about an important topic. My guest is Maura Aarons Mealy. She is the host of the Anxious Achiever podcast from Harvard Business Review. She's also the author of a book called Hiding in the Bathroom, How to Get Out There When You'd Rather Stay Home. It is all about the connection between anxiety, depression, and your career. Mental illness is at an all-time high in our country for a lot of reasons. Might be FOMO, might be Facebook's fault, and we dive deep on the topic and we explore how these two things are related because some of the most ambitious, some of the most successful people are uh, those suffering with anxiety. We'll talk about that deeper. Hey, before we jump into the conversation with Mora, I'm going to tell you a little bit about some comedy I got coming up. I will be closing out the Best of Atlanta show at Marietta's New Theater in the Square. That's in Marietta, Georgia, suburbs of Atlanta. That will be on Saturday the 30th. That's two days after Thanksgiving. You will be tired of your relatives by the time that comes around. So come on out if you're in Atlanta. I will also be at the Dayton Funny Bone with Tricks, with two X's, from December 6th through that weekend, the 8th, I believe this is Sunday night. I will be participating in the Laughing Matters Benefit Show at the Punchline here in Atlanta, Georgia on December 11th. Then the weekend of December 13th through the 15th, I'll be at the Toledo Funny Bone with Tony Roberts. And the weekend of the 19th through 22nd, I will be at the Columbus, Ohio Funny Bone with Damon Williams. Yes, three magical weekends in Ohio in December. I'm a lucky fella. And uh, as part of my family's vacation, we'll be in uh, Tucson, and I'll be doing a guest spot at Laughs Tucson. That's L-A-F-F-S Tucson on December 28th. Hope you can come on out. And if you do, say hi. I'd love to talk to you. What else is going on? This week is Thanksgiving. So I want to ask you, what are you thankful for? What are the things you're most thankful for in your life? Stop for one second. Just think, what are three things you're grateful for right now? You don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to email me. You can if you want to at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. But I just want you to think for just a second, what are you grateful for? I'm going to share what I'm grateful for. Incomplete, non-exhaustive list of things I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for my family. And I am grateful to live in the United States where we are turkey-eating people who can all disagree without worrying about getting thrown in jail. Democracy, okay, constitutional republicanism for you sticklers out there. It's a good thing and we should never forget it. Specifically, as it relates to this podcast, I want to thank a few people. Thank you to my wife for agreeing to a very candid conversation, a talk about how we talk about money that came out two weeks ago. And I'm still getting emails and notes on Facebook from people saying, that could have been me and my wife. You all brought up a lot of important issues, and thank you for doing it. We put ourselves out there a little bit. It was a lot of fun, kind of, and uh, I really appreciate my wife being willing to do that. I want to thank my cousin, Eric Harrison, my cousin's cousin, actually, my cousin's cousin's son, to be specific again. Eric Harrison, who brought to my attention this week's guest, Maura Aarons Mealy whose work I find to be very interesting, and I know you will when we get to the conversation in just a few minutes. And I want to thank all of you, you fine people listening to the podcast. I'm getting such nice notes and feedback from many of you who say these conversations mean something to you, that they're either entertaining and or thought-provoking, and that is highly gratifying to me. Because I don't think we, as a society, we're not spending enough time reflecting on what we really want from money, work, and careers, i.e. our lives so I'm hopeful that more people can find these conversations and can help just a few of us connect the dots between what will make us happy and how we spend our time. Uh, by the way, one of the ways I think about what we're doing here, like, and I think that in a world post-corporate job, the most important thing anyone can do is to find something worth doing, to do it for the right reasons, and to keep doing it. And I think that that's what's happening here for me. This is worth doing. Don't know what's going to happen with it. Don't know that's going to make me famous. Certainly not going to fill the coffers of Ollinger Incorporated anytime soon, but it's worth doing and uh, you make it worth doing. So thanks for, uh, thanks for participating. Thanks for sharing, by the way. Hey, please rate and review this episode. Please share it with three friends who you think might benefit from it. And in this week specifically, this is not just a generic topic about money and happiness or about the three things that can make us happy. This is about a very specific topic that's important. It's about anxiety and depression and other mental illnesses that many, many of us are, are dealing with out there. I don't think I suffer from anxiety. I, I have, I have overthinking-itis. That's what I have. I have a voice in the back of my head that says, you can be doing more. You could be working harder. You should be working at a higher level, whatever. 
and it beats me up a little bit. I think all of us have that, but it's not crippling. It doesn't keep me hiding in the bathroom at social events or at work events. It never did when I was in the corporate world. But a lot of people do deal with this, and Maura Aarons Mealy is one of them, and she's a highly, highly accomplished person with a unique angle on what's going on here. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Maura Aarons Mealy is the founder of award-winning social impact agency, Women Online, and its database of women influencers, The Mission List. An extremely anxious introvert herself, Maura hosts the Anxious Achiever podcast for HBR Presents. That's Harvard Business Review, by the way. She's passionate about helping people rethink the relationship between mental health and leadership. Her best-selling book, Hiding in the Bathroom, How to Get Out There When You'd Rather Stay Home, was published by HarperCollins and is available in many languages. She's written for the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Fast Company, and a whole bunch of other prestigious media outlets. She has degrees from the Harvard Kennedy School, Brown University, and holds a certificate in government from the London School of Economics. Obviously, she's a highly, highly accomplished person, and yet she deals with anxiety every single day. She puts herself out there in this conversation and in all of her work. So please enjoy this conversation with Maura Aarons Mealy. How could I not be affected by the power of money to make me feel safe or not safe? And how do you check yourself for that behavior today? You know what? I don't have an answer to that. It's something I'm working on still, but I mean, my husband and I, I was listening to your show with your wife. My husband and I <laughs> spent all weekend cataloging our money because we don't know where it all goes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I was so depressed and so anxious. I could barely get out of bed yesterday morning. I felt like the world was going to end. I felt like I was a failure. He was a failure. There was no way out. We're headed towards the poorhouse. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Maura Aarons Mealy, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks, Paul. It's uh, fun to be on someone else's podcast for once. Hey, well, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> So you write a lot about anxiety and you host a podcast called The Anxious Achiever. One of the first statistics I read was that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States. What does anxiety look and feel like? Anxiety looks and feels like something different for everyone. But I think that many of us actually don't know it. There are, there are many people, I think, including you know myself at one time, who live in a state of being kind of unplugged from our bodies and our emotions. And so we can be so extremely anxious and yet not know that we're anxious. And I feel like it's important to say that up front. Anxiety can manifest as physical symptoms, headaches, stomach problems, fatigue. It can manifest as anger. It can manifest as sadness. So there's no one way, you know, we think of the person sort of fluttering heart and panicky and can't breathe and all over the place. And that's certainly one manifestation of anxiety, but there are many people walking amongst us who project total calm and are yet sort of somatizing or putting anxiety elsewhere. What's the difference between anxiety and depression? The two seem to be related, but do they overlap or they was one part of a, the umbrella of the other or what's the connection? Anxiety and depression are, I guess the medical term is comorbid often. They do occur together, but they're extremely different. Anxiety is really about a sense of ever-present fear that something bad is going to happen, either to people that you love, to yourself, that you will be ashamed. It's sort of like living in a sense of existential fear, like the other shoe is about to drop at any moment, right? It's about the future. And unlike real fear, right, which is when you are driving your car and you almost hit someone and you break suddenly and thank God everyone's okay, but you are in a high state of adrenaline and arousal, right? That's real fear for a purpose, like that's adaptive. Anxiety means that sometimes you can feel that way, but nothing has happened. It's a Tuesday morning mm. and you're sitting there drinking your tea. And so it's a state of sort of 
arousal and fear and anticipation of bad things. Right. Depression is deep, deep sadness. It's a deep, deep sense of hopelessness, right? It's a deep, deep sense of almost feeling, sometimes it can feel like apathy. It can feel like extreme fatigue. It's a total lack of any kind of zest or lust for life. And even though a lot of people who have anxiety, I think have depression, they feel different and they look different. Now I should say, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a medical professional. So I'm probably not good at diagnosing, but those are my sort of, I've been in this area a long time, personal reflections. Those sound like pretty accurate descriptions from what I've heard and what I've read. Hmm. When did anxiety and depression first show up in your life? Well, you know, I was a really anxious little kid, actually. When I talked to my mom, I had agoraphobia when I was three and had panic anxiety when I went outside. So I think I was honestly born this way. You know, they don't know where anxiety comes from. It's genetic. It's environmental. It's um, in the water. Sometimes I think at this point in the world and late stage capitalism, it's caused by so many different things. But I think for some of us, we are just born this way. I am anxious. I have always been anxious. I had my first episode of, I think, clinical anxiety and depression when I was 19. And that's when I first sort of had my first breakdown and serious bout of not being able to get out of bed, having a lot of issues and going on meds. But, you know, I am just this person. I am extremely ambitious. I am extremely high achieving. I'm extremely intense and I'm extremely anxious. And about every few years or so, I get depressed. You said in your, either in your book or in the podcast, sorry, I've listened to both. So that you didn't have friends as a kid because you were weird. And also you were clear on your desire to grow up and become a media mogul. Now, I'm not sure if that's what the weirdness was. But it seems to me like you've got both the social awkwardness and intense ambition. How are those two related? Oh, my God. Well, you know, just look at Washington, D.C. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I was weird. I was weird when I was a little kid. Then my parents sent me to a really cool progressive private school. And I don't think I was so weird anymore. I had friends. But then I entered the girl drama years. Right. So I had a couple years of having friends and thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then my best friend iced me out in sixth grade uh, and told all the other girls to stop talking to me for the whole year. Right. And I spent the whole year of sixth grade literally having no friends. And so I think <laughs> that, that when I look back on my childhood, my social experiences are just extremely sort of painful and awkward all the way up until I was about 25 or 26. Although I had wonderful friends, I wasn't a very good friend. And I was very either neurotic or cruel and also liked to be alone. I'm a real introvert and I like to be alone. And sometimes, you know, when you're a teenager and you're, and you're in college, that can be really hard and people take it the wrong way. There's that. And the ambition, again, I think that I was just born ambitious. I was raised to be ambitious as well. However, my personal ambition conflicted with the ambition that I think my parents and society fed to me. What do you mean by that? Well, how would those two differ? I think a lot of people might be able to relate to this. When you are a self-motivated kid and you do well, whether at school or sports or leadership or extracurriculars, you get a lot of positive feedback, right? right? Mm -hmm. You get validation. And then you tune into that validation and you mm. think, oh, if I just did more of this, right. I would continue to be the scholar athlete of the year and I would continue to get the recognition and be school president and captain of the varsity team and oh my goodness. And that sort of escalates as you get older. And I think that all of a sudden, and I've heard this from so many people I've talked to on my book tour and hosting shows and writing I'll never forget this one woman wrote me and she said, I ended up at this law firm in Washington, D.C. And every day I'd come to work and I would cry. <laughs> and I'd think, how did I get here? Right. Straight A student, great law school, law review, great firm, crying every day. Because she's been doing all the things she was supposed to do for all those years. Mm -hmm. and ended up the product of what somebody else thought she should be. Of the shoulds, right? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that she's not ambitious. It doesn't mean that she should give it all up and go sit somewhere. 
It means that her natural intrinsic ambition that got her noticed in the first place and made her do well might have taken a detour somewhere and she needs to get in touch with that intrinsic motivation. Yeah. And what is that for you? What's your intrinsic motivation? I have so many of them. I mean, that's the, that's the funny thing. And that's the thing that, I mean, I'm 43 and I am loving getting older so much because now that I've gotten rid of a lot of the shoulds, you know, I work for myself and I do things that a lot of people think maybe I shouldn't do, like talk publicly about my mental health and my drinking problems and all these things, you know, I mean, you probably relate to this. I don't know if your parents like are like, oh my gosh, my son hosts this show where he talks about crazy money. My 92 year old father was one of my early guests. So. You're kidding. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but at the, no, but at the, at the end he said, okay, where will this be printed? So, <laughs> so, so I'm not sure he knew exactly what it was, what I was doing. <laughs> Last week, I interviewed my wife about the way we talk about money, and it felt highly vulnerable. But I think vulnerability is like the new strength in this era, you know, on some level. honestly, and when you're doing what you love, you have to be vulnerable because you don't know if it will succeed or fail. Right. So you have degrees from Brown and Harvard, and you studied at London School of Economics. Did studying make you anxious, or did you study hard because you were anxious, and that's sort of what you felt you were supposed to be doing? I think up to a point I studied hard because I was anxious and then I sort of figured out the system and and I actually did not study so hard at certain points. You know, I wasn't like a classic. My college best friend was Phi Beta Kappa and I remember at graduation thinking, God, I'm such a loser. Like I didn't write a thesis. I didn't (laughs) get any honors, but I knew how to do well enough. And I truly love learning. I mean, I love learning. My dream is to go back and get a PhD when my kids go to college or when they're done with college. Did you feel like you were pretending for a lot of those years before you were in your mid-20s? Yeah, I mean, I I think, and and I've written about this a lot, I was pretending for many years until I was in my 30s, you know, and um, I knew that I wanted a big life. I knew that I wanted a really satisfying career, but I would get really good jobs and then immediately sort of feel depressed in them and also start to not mess up because I never functionally messed up. What I wasn't good at was the office politics, the standing my turf, protecting all that stuff that really gets you ahead. I was really bad at. Mm -hmm. And it was because I wasn't doing the right work for me. I wasn't in the right place. I didn't have a path out front of me for the life that would have fit my ambition and my skills. And so I sort of found my way. I mean, I, you know, unfortunately, unlike you did not make a ton of money at Facebook, but (laughs) was early in that first internet boom so that, you know, you could kind of be a smart 22 year old and end up running an internet marketing department because no one else knew any better, you know, in the nineties. And so that was me and I found my way, but I kept quitting jobs. I kept falling into these depressions. I moved all over the world. I was sort of on a search for the thing that would make me happy. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a cliche and it was definitely a privileged problem to have. But, you know, one of the things that I talk about is that those of us who are raised to achieve, again, not necessarily because it's the kind of achieving we want to do, but just because it's what we've always done and it feels good and we don't know any other way, if we don't tune in at some point to what really makes us happy and what really drives us can end up in some pretty bad places. How bad did it get for you? Just extreme clinical depression and anxiety, just a life of constantly feeling, why am I so sad? Why is this this hard? And finding the right kind of work was very helpful in pulling yourself out of that. I think I I had to do a lot of work. I, I found the right partner, my my amazing husband, Nico. I also sort of learned to be better with money so that I had a little independence to Mm. find myself, which is really important. And sort of taking the pressure off and giving myself some room to quit a big job and take the time to find the work that would make me happy. And you founded a company called Women Online. And in your book, you talk about how you designed it according to 
the things that would allow you to do the kind of work you wanted to do at the level you wanted to do and at the volume you wanted to do it. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that Women Online is something I'm really proud of. A, because I think we do incredible work and I'm proud of our work. We're a digital marketing agency. We create um, mostly digital campaigns, strategic communication campaigns that mobilize women. And that means that we work for really amazing clients, mostly nonprofit and NGO or foundation, you know, clients, sometimes political campaigns, sometimes companies, for-profit companies, but that have a mission to make the world better for women, right? And this could be by providing better childcare or better healthcare or better financial services. You know, one of the things that I learned along the way in all the many jobs that I quit was that women drive the economy. We drive consumer purchasing, right? We, we drive household purchasing, healthcare purchasing. So we have a lot of power. Again, coming up on the early internet, which was first message boards and then blogging and now social media, I learned the power of what happens when a woman uses her voice online. And I sort of had this natural passion for politics and social change and working on organizing campaigns and advocacy campaigns. And so when I sort of came up for air after a several year depression, quitting my last corporate job, trying to find myself, going to grad school, getting pregnant, you know, all this stuff happening, I realized if I could find a way to combine the things that I really cared about and knew how to do, you know, digital marketing, corralling women's voices, powerful women's voices, which back then when I started my company were mostly bloggers and now we call them influencers, right? Mm -hmm. And working with clients who really wanted to use digital media to get their message out, I could have something, you know? And so I just basically started this small business by freelancing and, you know, putting those internet marketing skills to use and um, my own experience as a blogger, as an early blogger. And as the company turned from, you know, just me freelancing to being a small business, I also wanted to put a lot of cultural, like, touch points in place because when I was finding myself after I quit my last corporate job, I studied workplace redesign and the field of work life, which is all about making work better for people. You know, so many people work is really bad for, right? Showing up in an office is bad for a lot of us. And so I knew all this stuff about creating a flexible schedule and helping people work remotely and, you know, all that good stuff. And I thought my company is going to have no schedule, no paid time off, no office. We are all going to treat each other like grownups and we're going to communicate and see if this works. How did you fight through the financial fears of starting a new business? Were you worried about money when you first started your business? I'm always worried about money. <laughs> I, I have Tell me about constant, that. constant bag lady syndrome. And I think the biggest thing is that I sort of started my business during the financial crisis. I graduated from graduate school and was pregnant in the summer of 2008 when Lehman Brothers collapsed and the world fell apart. My, my parents lost half their money. You know, it just felt like money was not abundant anymore, right? We, we were all scared. And for many of us, you know, I, I didn't have any money. I just had student debt. But seeing all these older people lose all their money was very scary. So I just started freelancing because I thought I can always get contracts doing digital marketing freelancing, right? I could always do that. And that's how I sort of paid the bills when I graduated in the midst of the financial crisis. And it was only a couple of years later that the freelancing became sort of big and steady enough for me to think, oh, okay, I could bring on one more person. If I had thought about it like a business, I never would have started it because it would have scared me too much. <laughs> right. And today you talk a little bit in your book about how you've designed it such that you grow at your, the rate you want to grow. And part of that is foregoing potential revenue so that you maintain the style of life and the style of work that fits for you. Yes. And that's hard. That has never gotten easier <laughs> in all the years because, you know, you're ambitious and you want to grow and you see people growing and you see friends growing and you see IPOs and, you know, you just, it's hard as an ambitious human not to compare yourself to other people constantly. Yes, it is. And so when you have a business that is really small and stays pretty small and doesn't seem to get bigger, it can feel 
all those old feelings of shame and am I good enough? Should I work harder? Come back, you know, and it takes a lot of training and discipline almost to keep saying to yourself, no, this is your choice. You describe yourself as a hermit entrepreneur, (laughs) which (laughs) I trademarked it. Oh, you did? That's fantastic. (laughs) I was going to say, it sounds almost pejorative, but what do you mean by that? And how have you built your business as a hermit? I'm a total hermit right now. I'm sitting, I'm talking to you in my little home office in the suburbs. I learned, you know, part of why I quit so many jobs is that I'm a total introvert and I have social anxiety. And so being in a busy office environment all day is like kryptonite for me. Like it just (laughs) zaps me. And so one of the things I learned was that I need a lot of quiet alone time. And ironically, having a small business, the kind of business I have now, if I owned a restaurant or some kind of business where I had to stand at the register, it would be different, but I own a small service consulting business, right? So all I need is a laptop and a connection and I am good. I can do it anywhere, right? And so what I've learned is a sort of certain days on, certain days off schedule, I chunk my time. So this week I'm not traveling. It's a down week. It's super quiet. I can go to yoga in the middle of the day. I can cook. I can hang out. I've got all my animals in my house. I love animals. I have a little bit of a menagerie and my kids. But the past four weeks, I was on the road like a crazy person because fall is just busy, right? Clients want to meet and review budgets. Public speaking is very busy. And so it ebbs and flows. I know hopefully that now I'll be home until Christmas and that will be amazing. You can't have it all. But if you know yourself and you're willing to give up some certain things and be creative, I do believe it's possible to create a work life that really suits your temperament. And that's what I mean by being a hermit entrepreneur. Like I will never be rich and famous, but I don't know. This is a pretty big podcast. So, well, thank you. But you know, I don't know about you, but podcasting doesn't send anyone to the millionaire's row, but well, maybe some people, not me. I think that it's amazing to be able to love Mondays. Like that to me is worth a million dollars. You have created a life of your own design, which a work life of your own design, which is fantastic, but there's lots of people out there, men and women who work for big corporations or even small corporations that you know, playing the game and putting in the FaceTime is a big part of how they can, well, they have to do it to keep their jobs, especially if they want to move forward and, you know, move up the organization. What do they do? I would say two things. One, take heart because the world is changing. Two, read Callie Yost. How do you spell that? Okay. So she is C-A-L-I-Y-O-S-T. She is my work-life fit mentor slash fairy godmother. And she has published widely. She's written, I think, two or three books. She coined the term work-life fit because there's no work-life balance. And her point is the most powerful point, which is if you're good at your job, your boss doesn't want you to leave. Hmm. And by the way, leaving your job is going to cost your boss and your company probably at least three months of your salary. If you are on the verge of leaving because you feel that the FaceTime is killing you or you would just love to avoid your commute more or you really need a day a week to work from home or what, or your open office is draining you, that is not a good enough reason to quit. And if your boss allows you to quit because of that, that's a horrible culture, certainly if you're an information worker. And so I really love Callie's work because it is so empowering and it's so common sense. She likens it, and she's done so much work in the space. She's got tremendous research to someone walking in, quitting, right, because they are feeling like FaceTime is too demanding or they really want to work from home or whatever, you know, reasons that are about your environment and the demands on your temperament to me calling up my husband and telling him I want a divorce without even going offering counseling, right? (laughs) Right. And, and that happens all the time. I mean, I talk to people all the time who are like, I just, I just couldn't handle my commute, so I quit. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. No, I think that happens a lot. I th- for yeah. a variety of reasons, you know, there's something going on at work that isn't working, and you just say, I'm going to bail, as opposed to, you know, really putting in the, the hard and sometimes sticky work of trying to work through problems. And you know what? Like a marriage, if you can't solve it in a conversation and counseling, maybe you have to leave, but at least give it a shot. 
You know, it's not a binary choice. So let's talk about some of those issues that show up. What is ambient anxiety? <laughs> well, again, I'm not a clinician, but um, <laughs> ambient anxiety is when you pick up anxiety in the room. And I think this happens a lot in the workplace. It happens so much between teams, leaders, right? Have you ever been in a meeting and it just feels off and everyone is sort of twitching and there's a lot of body language and people are sort of looking around? Sure. And there's like almost a fear in the room. Mm -hmm. That's ambient anxiety. And a lot of leaders and managers, because they're not tuned in to emotions and how they project emotions, give off anxiety and create anxiety and don't even realize it. So for those of us who are extroverts and annoying as hell to <laughs> many introverts, how do we pick up on some of those signs and how can we help create a more friendly environment? You practice and you talk about it. I mean, the, the funny thing that I think all this stuff comes down to are basic, basic leadership principles, like communicating, like knowing yourself, like having empathy, right? But ultimately, it's about communicating. I think that a lot of times we create situations at work that are so hard because we just don't communicate, right? Mm. And I know that that sounds simple, but I really do believe it's true. And so I will recommend actually someone whose work I think has been transformative in this space. He's a pastor. I am not a Christian. I am not a religious person, but his name is Steve Cuss, C-U-S-S. And his book and podcast, Managing Leadership Anxiety, is the best primer you could get if you're listening and you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm a leader. And I feel like I'm anxious in a lot of my management situations. I don't know how to handle it. Or my workplace feels very anxious. There's a lot of this ambient fear and anxiety going on. Right. Or I get angry or my boss just yells at me and freaks us all out. And I don't know why. Steve breaks it down. Oh my gosh. It's so fabulous. So managing leadership anxiety. Because his point is that we all live in a system. And if one person is anxious, that has ramifications for everyone else. How do you pick up anxiety in somebody else? I mean, do you have to be looking for it? Do you have to be aware of it? How does it present itself? Are there physical cues we can be looking for? Well, I can pick up anxiety in anyone. <laughs> is that your, is that your empathetic. Your anxiety dar? I'm going to go look this up, actually. Here's, here's what I think. Anxious people pick it up. Because that's what we do. Mm -hmm. I think that unanxious people will feel it because it may seem to them like anger, like stress. Everyone knows when their boss is stressed, when you go into your boss's office and they're barely paying attention to you and they're distracted and they just bark an order at you. Right. Right. It could be that your boss is extremely anxious. Right. But we're not trained to think of it like that because we think, oh, God, our boss is a jerk or why is our boss barking orders or can't they pay attention to me or can't they look me in the eye? What the hell's going on? Well, bosses are people, too. Your boss is probably extremely anxious. Right. How does the FOMO and achievement porn of social media play <laughs> into all of this? Oh, my God. That's like a whole other show. I mean, you know, it's funny. I love I it. Mean, I like the achievement porn podcast. I want to host that. Oh, God, achievement porn. You know, it's funny. So I coined this term entrepreneurship porn in, I think it was 2013 or 14. Mm -hmm. I wrote an article in Harvard Business Review, and it didn't quite fit into my book, so I changed it to achievement porn. And now, of course, we have all kinds of porn. We have, you know, food porn, and there's Thanksgiving porn on Instagram. <laughs> but the point there's also, is, There's right, also porn porn. Well, there is porn porn, which is, a you know, something I'm actually really involved with in my work at Women Online. We do a lot of work in the sex ed space. And so I'm extremely passionate about helping parents and kids talk about porn. We can oh, talk about that that's later. Huge. I've got friends, friends giving their kids Playboy magazines as like pornographic methadone. 
You're kidding. Does it work? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, there's going to have to be some longitudinal study of Gen Y kids or whatever 13 year olds are Lord. in to say a group A was exposed only to Hugh Hefner and to, you know, non genital pornography. And group B ran through the nuclear porn available on the internet today and see what happened to those, those two discrete groups. I don't know. Well, you know, there's a scholar, Gail Dines, who is amazing on this, and she calls porn the public health crisis of the digital age. Mm. And there is some data on its effects. So it's, it's terrifying. Yes. But we digress. We digress. But the point is, is that I think we, we sort of expect porn on the internet, <laughs> right? right? And those of us who are addicted to social media, and who also, frankly, I think for most of us, we need social media, right? Like you have a podcast, you you have to tell people about it. Your stand-up comedy, like I'm sure that social media plays a, an important role in your professional business development, right? Yeah, but it's so overblown. I mean, like I'm a fan of Facebook, but I don't delude myself in thinking that it's 100% net good for humanity. And myself very much included when I'm sitting there checking social media a hundred times a day, hoping somebody has acknowledged my professional existence. That's not a healthy way to live, you know? No, it's, fe it's feeding anxiety and narcissism. Yeah. Oh my but, God. Did you just diagnose me? You're not a clinician. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not you're, saying you're, you're not your anxiety and narcissism, all of ours. <laughs> okay. okay. We, are, okay. we are creating such a narcissistic culture. You know, I mean, our kids grow up with cameras in their faces from day one, you know? Anyway, I think that, the point is, though, we're human and we use social media and we say to ourselves, Facebook is evil and I'm better than this. And I know my friends curate their Instagram and I know they're really miserable people who are getting a divorce, whatever. It doesn't matter. We see everyone else's achievements and how can it not affect us? It mm. does affect us. It makes us envious. It makes us jealous. It makes us feel bad. I've been rejected from seven or eight TED things, TED talk things like sure. TED X. And I'm like, okay, I keep getting rejected. That's fine. But a lot of people I know because I live in this world are constantly giving TED things. And so every time I go on the internet, this just happened to me twice this morning, two colleagues were like, Oh, check out my new TEDx talk. And so <laughs> instantly I am left in a headspace of like, why did they get invited? And I've been rejected so many times. Sure. It's just human. Does the same jealousy apply to, to materialism and class issues? I mean, you're talking about status, but about money. How does, how does anxiety play into money and jealousy? I think that for so many of us, we manifest our anxiety and money. You know, it's such an easy way. We put anxiety into our bodies. We put it into our eating. We put it into our drinking. We put it into our exercising. We put it into our relationships and we put it into our money. How could we not? I think your childhood origin informs how you think about money, right? I know you talk about that. I'm, I'm the child of divorce of two parents who literally used money as a way to punish each other when they weren't speaking to each other, mm. you know? And so how could I not be affected by the power of money to make me feel safe or not safe? And how do you check yourself for that behavior today? I, you know what? I don't have an answer to that. It's like, it's something I'm working on still, but I mean, my husband and I, I was listening to your show with your wife. My husband and I spent all weekend cataloging our money because we don't know where it all goes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I was so depressed and so anxious. I could barely get out of bed yesterday morning. I, I felt like, I felt like the world was going to end. I felt like I was a failure. He was a failure. There was no way out. We're headed towards the poor house. Right. Empirically, you know that's not true, but you can't detach yourself from that emotionally. Is that is that an I went to therapy, and I told my therapist that. We talked it through. <laughs> and today, I feel, I feel a little bit better. I have this weird compulsive thing. When I get into a bad money place, I go online to all my accounts, and I literally count how much money I have. Right which is so strange, but <laughs> it's I don't not, know. It's not. Because you're catastrophizing, right? That's what, totally. that's what you're doing. And money's a great thing to catastrophize around because money if my wife buys thing. another rug, we're going to go broke. Well, and you know, if you're lucky enough 
to be privileged, you know, again, I, I have to acknowledge my privilege. People I know have more money than I do. Sure. You know, I live in a fancy town. It's really hard. Does it affect the way that you relate to those people? Hmm. I, think, I don't know. Maybe. I don't think so. I think also, you know, my years as a small business owner sort of have taught me how to, I can look like I have a lot more money than I do. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I look like I have a lot of money. I, I don't, you know, I think that through therapy and I am, I feel very lucky in my life and I truly feel that it doesn't mean that I don't get tremendously anxious about money and that I don't have thoughts of, I wish I was, you know, X, Y, and Z down the street, or if only I was better, I'd have more money. Or if I was less X, Y, and Z, I'd have more money. But if you were X, Y, and Z, you'd still feel that way because there'd be another X, Y, and Z. There'd be RST, you know, on the other side of the street. Right. Or you'd live on a different street where it was a whole other level. Right. Right. (laughs) So there's that scoreboard. And like, if if you're always at the top of the scoreboard, you're like, I got to find a new scoreboard. (laughs) It's so funny. I love what you said about you think that Bill and Melinda Gates fight about money. Of course they do. On some level. Absolutely. (laughs) I know. And when I, you know, 10 years ago, if you had said to me, if you made the amount of money that you make now as a household and you'd still be stressed, I would have said, I would not. Everything would be perfect. Of course it would be. Of course it would be. We totally habituate. We totally get used to it. It's human nature. Let's dive into your podcast because I think it's really interesting what you're doing. It's called The Anxious Achiever, produced and distributed by Harvard Business Review. Why did you start it? I'm obsessed with anxiety. How'd you pitch it? I asked them to adopt me. (laughs) Harvard, will you adopt me? (laughs) Larry Summers, will you adopt me? You have to understand that if you live in the environs of Harvard and are somehow affiliated to Harvard it's just all around. It's sort of like being in Hollywood and the movie business or being in Washington, DC in politics. Like I live in Harvard land. So I have more access than most. My wife and I went to see Ford versus Ferrari and having lived in LA for seven years, you know, you go to see a movie, sit through the credits all the way to the end. Right. Because it's the polite thing to do. Because some guy next to you was like the third gaffer on like one of the (laughs) locations. And so Sunday in Atlanta, we go see this movie. Soon as the credits start, I'm like, let's get the hell out of here. We live in Atlanta. Nobody cares. Totally. A hundred percent. All right. You live, you swim in a sea of crimson. I do. And although I myself am not affiliated, I was on my book talk year for my book, Hiding in the Bathroom, which is ostensibly about being an introvert, but is really about being an introvert with social anxiety and with anxiety. And all anyone wanted to talk about was anxiety. And because it's something that I like to talk about, we'd always talk about it. And I found that it was the thing that people responded to, that they just felt like they needed an outlet. And it was this idea of, I am so on my way to being successful, or I am successful, I am ambitious, I'm an achiever, but the real inside me is jelly. The Mm. real inside me has panic anxiety. The real inside me has such bad social anxiety that I avoid so many events because I am scared. Help. And I wanted to show the world of anxiety as I believe it really is, which is that anxiety is totally normal. So many of us have it. And so many really successful people have it. And it actually can make you an amazing leader and an amazing manager and a really good person. And so let's just talk about that, you know, and sort of remove this idea of like, oh my God, it's mental health and leadership. Like anxiety is part of leadership. And indeed one of the, one of the most compelling episodes you had featured a guy named Paul Greenberg, a very successful CEO who suffered from depression all of his life, tried to kill himself. And he spoke very openly and honestly about that. I mean, Paul, when I first talked to Paul, and, and you should go listen, listeners, because you just listen to five minutes of him because you'd be like, this guy's voice is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he used to be a radio sports announcer. And so when I did our pre-interview, I was like, come on, Paul, you're not that depressed. Because he's like, I was so depressed. I tried to kill myself. I'm so depressed. I had a lot. I mean, he has severe depression, worse depression than I ever had. 
And yet he is so successful. He never missed a day of work and he's so up. It's amazing. He's so resilient. It's kind of hard to believe that a guy who's that successful and a guy who sounds that positive is talking about things so incredibly frightening and debilitating. And yet very few people around him ever knew it. Mm-hmm. Like almost nobody. Almost nobody. But I believe that we don't know people's secrets. And the most successful people we know, and, and often, I mean, think about all the people we learned in retrospect who were drug addicts or had horrible mental health issues. You know, people are very good at hiding and masking and performing. How do you think it shows up differently for men than for women? Oh, there's a lot of data on this, actually. I mean, it does show up differently, I think, for men and women. I think that anger is an emotion that men (laughs) become more comfortable with. That's (laughs) a good emotion, but that's a good emotion, though, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's a manly emotion. Come on. That's perfectly, it's like, it's okay to yell, but not to cry in the workplace. Come on. So I think that anger, actually my favorite moment with Steve Cuss, the pastor that I spoke of, I, I, I interviewed him to be on my show and he said that mansplaining was really anxiety. Mm. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and he said, well, think about it. I'm anxious. I don't know if you're listening to me. I don't know if you trust me. I don't know if you respect me. So I need to tell you what to do. I need to tell you what you already know. Mm. Now, for women, anxiety is a much more culturally accepted and familiar emotion, right? And so I think that women, because we're seen as so much more emotional, um, people accept it, but they sort of stereotype us as like the crazy anxious lady, when in fact we might be tremendously anxious and that's why we're so accomplished, But I think for men, they often channel anxiety into extreme performance, anger, and frankly, drinking and substance abuse. I was going to say hiding in the bathroom. Most A-type sales guys don't hide in the bathroom because of anxiety. They hide in the bathroom because they're throwing up from last night's sales party. (laughs) But why are they drinking so much anyway? Why are they drinking so much to start with? Because they're anxious. Fair question. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you use anxiety to your advantage? I mean, I think for me, my anxiety has made me really tuned in to a lot of things. I'm really tuned into social dynamics, which I think is such a superpower when it comes to management and leadership, right? Certainly if you run a business, if you sell, it's so, so helpful. I've always wondered how people who sell for a living can be so oblivious to social cues, and yet a lot of people are. And I think when you live with anxiety your whole life and you're able to manage it and get out of your head, when you can tune into other people, it's really powerful. And also tuning into yourself and knowing how to maximize your performance, right? Like we know all these powerful CEOs like maximize their performance by not eating and fasting and working out and ketoing and all that shit. Like I think that tuning into your mental health is also key to maximizing performance, you know? And also when you have anxiety, you have to learn to ask for what you want and need. And that's really powerful. When you were on your book tour for hiding in the bathroom, what did people say to you when you went to speak to them? I mean, they said all different kinds of things, but you know, the nicest thing was just, thank you for seeing me. I never thought there was someone just like me out there. And I'm sure every author hears that at some different level. But it was awesome for me to be able to talk about things that I never felt proud of and sort of leave an hour later feeling proud <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm this anxious introvert who hides in the bathroom and hides from people and avoids people. And I'm kind of proud of that. What kind of games did you play with yourself to get yourself out of the bathroom? Well, I'm really good at getting myself out of the bathroom. You know, that's part of why I wrote the book. I actually, I'm quite an attention seeker. I think a lot of introverts are, to be honest, like a lot of our most famous introverts. I always say this, you know, Oprah and Amy Schumer have the great episode on Oprah's show talking about how introverted they are and how much they hide in the bathroom. How hilarious is that? So a lot of us, yeah, I mean, a lot of us are super attention seeking. (laughs) And so when part of the hiding in the bathroom is shifting the mindset from your natural state, which might be, 
I want to be alone. I need quiet. I need zero stimulation to, okay, it's showtime. I'm just turning on the performance. Yeah. I like the way you said, Hey, you know, set a goal, go meet three people and then you can go home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you've done your business. No, go do it. And then you get your reward. I mean, all it is, is being a conscious and mindful person, right? Knowing your limits, knowing your boundaries, respecting them, and then hopefully respecting other people's too. The world of work would be so much better if we all could just do that. All right, Maura, it's been really fun to talk to you. Is there anything else we wanted to address before we jump off the phone? No, I don't think so. Okay, Maura Aarons Mealy, thank you so much for your time. The book is called Hiding in the Bathroom, an Introvert's Roadmap to Getting Out There When You'd Rather Stay Home. And her podcast from Harvard Business Review is The Anxious Achiever, available wherever podcasts can be found. Maura, is there another place online people can find out more about you? Sure, you can go to my website, which is womenandwork.org, W-O-M-E-N-A-N-D-Work.org, or you can find me on Twitter. Awesome, thanks again for your time. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Maura, very much for that very interesting and enjoyable conversation. I learned a lot from both the conversation and from listening to your podcast, The Anxious Achiever, and reading your book, Hiding in the Bathroom. I think for some of us, especially these extroverts and sales guys, we just assume everybody is like we are. Like, you know, everybody wants a pat on the back. Everybody wants to tell jokes and be the life of the party. And that's not always how everybody else out there feels. So it's good to uh, be reminded to be more empathetic and look for cues in our coworkers and friends. Hey folks, if you enjoy what we're doing here at the Crazy Money Podcast, I sure would appreciate it if you would both rate and review this podcast on whatever podcast app. I've said podcast like three times in the past sentence. On whatever app you're listening to it on. Sorry for dangling that preposition, but seriously, throw us some stars, write down your feelings, tell other potential listeners why you listen to it. And hey, if you have a second, share the podcast on the uh, social media or just email it to three friends who you believe would find it enjoyable. It's Thanksgiving week. I hope you and your family and your loved ones have a great time. I hope you take a minute to reflect on what's going right in your life and radiate that forward. I am thankful for you and really, really appreciate you taking the time to make this podcast part of your routine. All right. Have a great day.